0: On me thy image breathe.
1: Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald (laughs) Cullop. Episode 122 during the broadcast of La Boheme on February 4th, 1967, a two-part episode of Biographies in Music aired, hosted by Francis Robinson, about the Scottish soprano Mary Garden. He speaks of biographical details in his inimitable style, and the listener will hear excerpts from Louise, Pelleas et Melisande, Carmen, La Traviata, and the songs At Parting, In the Gloaming, At Dawning, and Annie Laurie. I have included the announcements before and after each of the two parts, which play without interruption.
2: And now, Francis Robinson is ready for part one of his Biographies in Music and the story of Mary Garden. Mr. Robinson. Thank you, Mr. Cross. In the seven years we've been bringing you these Biographies in Music... All the subjects have been artists who were members of the Metropolitan Opera Company, except one. You already know the name. Mary Garden sang a number of times at the Metropolitan Opera House, but never as a member of the company. It was always as prima donna of the organization that later became the Chicago Opera. Before that, she held forth as a reigning star of Oscar Hammerstein's troupe at the Manhattan Opera House, and afterward at the Lexington Opera House during the annual visits of the Chicago Opera. When queried as to why she never sang with the Metropolitan, her answer was, as her answers always were, direct, frank, and simple. I was never asked. In her repertoire, particularly the modern French works, she had no rival. For one so dynamic and straightforward, Mary Garden presented a number of contradictions. She was born in Scotland, preferred to live in France, but was as American, as Chicagoan, as Jane Addams or Carl Sandburg. The critics delighted in short-changing her voice. Huneker referred to her as a sonorous mirage, yet she's one of the legendary figures of opera. She enjoyed quite a high reputation as a femme fatale, yet an expert would be hard put to name one of her lovers and try to reconcile the legend with this flat statement in her autobiography. I'm certain I never loved anyone in my life. And she ends the book, which, by the way, was written in collaboration with our old friend Louis Biancoli, My Music Always Came First. My passion was opera, and that was the only real romance of my life. She came to America as a child with her father and mother and sisters, and the family settled in Chicago. Her musical gifts showed themselves early, and her teacher found her a sponsor who sent her to Paris for further study. After about a year and a half, the monthly payment checks stopped, Mary's teachers wouldn't dream of letting her go merely because she couldn't pay, but there was still the matter of room and board, however modest the pension. Incidentally, Miss Garden's father later paid back every cent her sponsors had advanced, a sum between twelve dollars and $15,000. It was November. The leaves were falling. In desperation, Mary had gone for a walk in the bois. A lady walked by. It was Sybil Sanderson, the American singer for whom Massenet had written Thais. Mary sobbed out her story, and Sybil Sanderson made her come home with her for lunch, and that very afternoon moved her into a room in her own luxurious apartment. Two months later, Sanderson invited Albert Carey, the director of the opera Comique, to dinner to meet her protégé. Monsieur Carré, in turn, invited them to come next day to the rehearsal of a new work he was preparing for its world premiere, Charpentier's Louise. Before she left the theater, Carré had given Mary the score of Louise to study. From that day, Miss Garden says, I spent every waking hour studying the score by myself. She saw and heard nearly every performance and would then go home and act out every bit of the stage business alone in her room. One day, there was an emergency call from the Comique. I believe you told me, Monsieur Carré said, that you know Louise. Every note, every step, Mary answered. Now listen carefully, he went on. I may need you tonight. Mademoiselle Riotton, the young lady who created the part, is ill. Will you help me out? Are you certain you can do it? Her reply? Your orchestra could be playing the Marseillaise. And I would still sing Louise. Here's your ticket. Be back at 7.30 and don't move from that seat until the final curtain. I hope you're not superstitious. The number of the seat, 113. And the day, April 13th, 1900. Sure enough, in the intermission before the third act, an attendant came looking for the occupant of 113. The conductor wanted to stop the performance and refund the people's money, but Carrie stood his ground. The major difficulty seems to have been to find a costume small enough for Mary Garden, who at that time weighed only 98 pounds. Incidentally, the last time she was here, she still weighed 98 pounds. She told me she hadn't eaten dinner for 30 years, tea and toast at 6 o'clock, and after the performance, instead of suppers of lobster and champagne, she had a glass of hot milk with ten drops of iodine in it. But back to Louise. It was Hamlet who said, The readiness is all. When it was almost time to begin Depuis Le Jour, Miss Garden recalls, I turned my back to the audience and walked up the stage, looking at Paris. Now's your chance, I said to myself. And I came back and put myself behind the chair where I had to sing that beautiful aria, and sang it as if I'd been on the stage for a hundred years. Mary Garden remained at the Comique for eight years... and sang Louise there one hundred times. At this point in her autobiography, she sums up her career. I began at the top, I stayed at the top, and I left at the top. Her next triumph came only two years later... the world premiere of *Pelléas and Melisande. Forget your singers, Debussy told his cast... In the 30 years she sang the part, Mary Garden never took a curtain call as Melisande. You see, she said, as Melisande, I really died. With tears in his eyes, Debussy said of her, there's nothing I can tell her. Everything she does is right. The next record we're going to play was made in 1904, two years after the world premiere of Peleus. It's the tower scene, and Claude Debussy himself is at the piano. You remember it's the moment when Melisande lets her hair fall from the window. And what hair? The story is that Miss Garden's Melisande wig came from a Brittany girl who sold her golden tresses to make up her dowry. It was Mary Garden and Claude Debussy in the tower scene from *Pelléas and Melisande. We'll be back at the third intermission. Thank you, Mr. Robinson. Our third intermission brings us the second part of Biographies and Music, which we began during the first intermission. The writer and commentator is Francis Robinson, an assistant manager of the Metropolitan Opera. Mr. Robinson's biography today, illustrated as usual by recordings, is of the legendary soprano Mary Garden. Mr. Robinson. It's hard to explain to anyone under a certain age the grip that Mary Garden had on the public mind. A perfume made in Paris and a roadway over Iron Mountain in South Dakota were named for her. The Parisians spoke of her as though she were one of themselves, and gallicized her name into a single French word, Mary Godin, very hard to imitate. New York was a different story. After a debut here with Hammerstein in Thais, the anvil chorus began about her vocal equipment, a lack of it. One critic observed her high notes were like the snakes in Ireland. Mary didn't get it and asked her father what kind of snakes they had in Ireland. Mary, he snorted, don't you know there aren't any snakes in Ireland? And they do say that when Miss Garden didn't feel like coping with the high D's in Thais, she would point to the note, rattle a bracelet or wave the inevitable chiffon handkerchief, and you applauded something you'd been hypnotized into believing you'd heard while the orchestra raced merrily on. A lot of this, of course, was sheer exaggeration. She sang the standard works like Tosca and Carmen and Faust, as well as the singing actress parts. In no other record does the premonition of doom hang over the card scene from Carmen, as it does in this one by Mary Garden.
0: que doy amor
2: Here's a recording of Traviata, which the comique revived for in a new production. I think you'll agree the singer on this record is one of no meager ability. You may have noticed Miss Garden was not singing in Italian. She favored French wherever possible, although albeit a French with Midwest and Scotch overtones, even spoke of Lucia, a role she never sang, as Lucie de Lamamour. Mozart was Mozart. It was sometimes difficult to know just what she was talking about. She even elected to sing Salome in French, and she was the first Salome to perform the dance herself. Strauss's shocker had been banished after one performance at the Metropolitan, but Mary blithely tackled Salome at the Manhattan. Those who witnessed it have never forgotten her waiting at the cistern, clean and mysterious as a cat, and as quiet. She knew the potency of silence. I've had more power over an audience with a silence than I ever had with a note. And in another place, she says... I used my voice the same way a painter uses his brush. To one of the critics who said she hadn't a voice, she replied, He's right. I haven't a voice. I've 25 voices, one for every role I sing. The president of the Chicago Law and Order League denounced Miss Garden Salome as a great degenerator of the public morals, and there was a personal encounter with Billy Sunday on the subject the chief of the Chicago police said in print, Miss Garden wallowed around like a cat in a bed of catnip. I always bow to the ignorant and try to make them understand, Miss Garden retaliated, but I ignore the illiterate. For a while, everybody had a high old time, but the Chicago opera itself withdrew Salome after three performances. No more was heard of the exigent daughter of Herodias until Miss Garden became general manager of the company. She was general manager for one season only, but what a season. She began by announcing grandly she would serve as general manager without pay, but she put herself down for 20 performances, needless to say, at the top fee. She produced the world premiere of Prokofiev's Love for Three Oranges, and in ten weeks she ran up a deficiency. Miss Garden never used the humble term deficit— it was always deficiency of $1,100,000. When he reached for fountain pen and checkbook, Harold McCormick gallantly remarked, It's a pleasure. Those were the days. An incident in connection with her management of the Chicago opera reveals Mary Garden's single-mindedness about her art. She had a contretemps with Lucien Muritor, the French tenor, and by the end of the season, the two weren't speaking. When the company reassembled in the autumn, there was still no greeting. Then the two met at their first rehearsal together. The opera was Monovana, a piece of claptrap by Fevrier based on the play by Meta-Link, which had its only success because of Mary Garden. At the rehearsal, Muratore sang his area so beautifully, the icy Mary melted and threw herself into her tenor's arms. Director, she was called at the Chicago Opera, D-I-R-E-C-T-A, thereby adding a new word to the language. When she took over the job, she announced, the days of foreign domination are over. When she stepped down, she announced, my place is with the artists, not over them. Wise Mary. Her last performance in Chicago and she told no one she was leaving, was a Jean, the pathetic little juggler who dies performing his tricks before the Blessed Virgin. The juggler of Our Lady had always been one of her most enthralling creations. Throughout her career, she was on page one, and she never had a press agent except her canny and galvanizing self. Her disdain of critics was epic, but she was generous to young artists. On her last visit here, she graciously consented to see Jean Fenn, our young American soprano then in her first season at the Metropolitan. Miss Fenn had just been engaged to sing the title role in Thais with the New Orleans Opera. How do you intend to costume yourself? was Miss Garden's first question. Miss Fenn had in mind white satin. White satin, Miss Garden snorted. Never. Pink chiffon and she told Jean how she could sew tiny chains into the hem so the material would cling to her handsome figure and reveal the line. You see, she was a sculptress, as well as singer and supreme actress. Her power over people, particularly men, was formidable. There was a royal row with Jean Howe, the Texas editor, when Mary, for one of the few times in her life, declined to grant an interview Amarillo was a one-night stand, and she never gave interviews on performance days. They later met, and, of course, Mary had him eating out of her hand. I'm afraid, Mrs. Howe said as they were leaving, I'll lose Jean now. To which Miss Garden retorted briskly, No danger. When I start wrecking homes, I won't begin an Amarillo. Later in her career, she was soloist at a concert of the Harvard Glee Club. Mary was at her best, surrounded by men. As an encore, she sang that little song of Roger's at parting. The sweetest flower that grows, I give you ere we part. For you, it's only a rose. For me, it is my heart. She pulled a flower from the giant bouquet which had just been delivered over the footlights and handed it to one of the dewy Harvard undergrads seated behind her. He blushed furiously. The audience applauded wildly. And next day, Philip Hale wrote in the Boston Herald, the high point of the evening was when Miss Garden placed the rose on the unknown soldier. They came to hear Caruso. They came to hear Melba she used to say, but they came to see Mary Garden. Mary didn't like her records, and she didn't make many. Some of them, I think, are wonderful. This old and familiar song, I think, gives you an excellent idea of that veiled voice, that sonorous mirage which always had about it some of the moonstruck and shadowy quality of Melisande. Certainly, it reveals her extraordinary power of communication in the gloaming. The one record of Miss Garden to win her seal of approval is an American song which used to be heard at weddings. The only record of mine, she said, that I would knowingly permit anybody to play in front of me is at dawning. The woman who sang that may have been, as she suggested in her book, incapable of love. But on the stage, and to Mary Garden that's what really mattered, she could make you believe otherwise. For the last five years of her life, Mary Garden was in a hospital and later a nursing home in Aberdeen. There was an explosion of a gas stove then a fall in which she broke both arms. There were times when she didn't know who she was or where she was, a pathetic end for a creature so vital. But there was a moment, a supreme moment, the Associated Press reported it, in the spring of 1962, when she sang, perhaps for the last time. She was 87, The audience must have been the most unusual of her long and eventful life, a packed ward in the Royal Infirmary of Aberdeen, doctors, nurses, patients. It's the first time I've sung in public for many, many years, she said. and like wind in summer sighing, the voice was low and sweet. One of the last times I saw Mary Garden on her visit to this country twelve years ago, she told me one day, with no preparation whatever, for no apparent reason at all, about having visited John Groat's up there in the very north tip of Scotland, where the land becomes sea, You see, she really was melisande. And she described having seen a little boy on the rocks. Do you wonder that's the first thing I thought of when I heard over the air last month that Mary Garden had died? Oh, well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. Oh, well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Thank you, Mr. Robinson.
1: Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com This is your producer, Donald Cullop.